If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We are nearing the end of this study, probably another two to three weeks, and we will finish this up. And then I want to tell you, we're going to be going into a study of a book I have never, ever taught before. And that is the book of the Song of Solomon. So buckle your seatbelts and, uh, and get ready. It's going to be an incredible study. Uh, the Song of Solomon is a, is a book that is just so rich with the imagery of God's great love for us and how that we as his bride can respond to him. Uh, it'll also be encouraging for those of you that are in relationship with others uh, about how that we can love our spouses and how we can take pleasure in the great gift that God's given to us. But we'll dive into that book next. But for the next two to three weeks, we'll be here in the book of uh, Hebrews and we'll be wrapping this thing up. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is where we'll be today. Uh, I know it's been a couple weeks since the last time that I spoke to you. And I just want to take a minute to kind of recap real quick where we were in chapter 12. And in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, he is encouraging us to run this race that God has entered us in. And, and we talked about the fact that, that we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And we, we pictured a, a track meet. And we said that in this track meet that, that we are called to be participants, that God chooses the race. He gives us the gifts. He coaches us and, and encourages us and trains us so that we can compete, not just for our own medals, but for the, the, the victory of the team. And we talked about the fact that there are those that have come before us, and we use this baton, and we said that there's those who've come before us that, that have handed us the baton of faith, and then we are to run our race but here's the cool thing. Most of us want to be the anchor leg. If, if you're on a relay team, you want to be the, the last person running, and you want to be the one who breaks through the tape at the end of the race and, 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 and wins the whole thing for your team. But the, the fact is, we are in this relay race, and somebody has handed us the baton of faith, and now we, not being the anchor, but being somewhere in those middle portions, are, are to hand off the faith to others who will take it and who will run with it long after us. And, and he's going to build upon that imagery this morning as he talks about us running this race. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, the first couple of verses was about us running this race and, and, and that we have been called to the race, we've been gifted for the race, and, and God has put us there, that we are to, to, to look at Jesus, his example that he gave to us, who the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And if you remember, we said it wasn't the cross that was joyful. It was anything but that. But Jesus endured the cross, looking ahead at what was waiting on the other side. You and I, many of you in this room, go through trials each and every week. And, and some of you are facing uh, an enormous amount of pressure and you're, you're, you're encountering trials that, that would just seem to, to overwhelm the, the normal man. And, and yet somehow you're finding strength in God to be able to press through those things. And, and, and I've heard this and I assume that it's true. I'm not a pilot. Uh, but, but I've heard that many times we think that the, the most dangerous part of flying is the takeoff or the landing. That once you're 30,000 feet in the air, everything's great. But but I've heard, and I guess this is true, that one of the most dangerous portions of the flight is not the takeoff or the landing, but it's when the pilot is breaking through the clouds. Because in that moment when we're breaking through the clouds, our eyesight fails us. The things that we see in what seems normal is what fails us. And it's in those moments that you're tempted not to trust the instrument, but to trust your eyes. And, and many pilots can talk about the fact that you get in the clouds and you can't see, and, and you end up inverted, you end up turned over, you end up going the wrong direction because you're trying to trust what you see instead of what is, is, is right there before you on the instrument panel. That the most dangerous part is the breaking through the clouds. Many of you find yourself in a fog like that right now. 
Maybe you've had a, a medical diagnosis. Maybe you've had some kind of a, a crisis in your life. Maybe you're, you're, you're facing something that you just don't know where to go and what to do, and you're going, how do I make it through this? Some of you have been pounded again and again and again with stuff that just keeps coming after you. And you go, man, I made it through the first four times, and I don't know how I'm going to make it through this time. And I would say to you today, we've got to trust the instrument. We don't just trust our eyesight. We don't just trust what we can see. But we trust the truths of God's word that get us through those moments when we don't think we can go on one more moment. And so as we dive into our passage today, we're going to pick up in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we've already covered the first four verses. But in verse 5, he's going to turn and, and change the, the imagery that he's been doing. He's, he's talked about us running in, in, in a race. He's going to come back here at the end of chapter 12 and talk some more about this race that we're in and, and, and to, to run it to completion. But, but he changes the imagery here. And I want to be very sensitive to what he does because he's going to change from a race to this image of father. And I realize that for some of you, when you hear that word father... It doesn't bring good images to you. When somebody says, oh, God is your father, you go, oh, can we have a different image? Can we have a different way to describe God? Because my father was anything but godly. My father was anything but this, 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 this warm, welcoming, loving person. Some of you have suffered great abuse and hardship at the hands of your earthly father. Some of you have never met your earthly father. He is biologically yours, but he is absent and aloof and, and unsupportive and unresponsive. Some of you have met your dads and been rejected by them who said that you're not my child. And so an image of a father to you is something that's hard for you to swallow. And, and it may stand as a roadblock between this, this passage we're going to look at today where he talks about God being our father. And God, knowing that, that, that fathers would let their kids down, still chooses this image of father to describe this incredible relationship that he has with us and, and his inner workings to mature us and to grow us and to make us more and more like Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews, under the full inspiration of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, still chooses to include this portion about God as our Father. I heard a story a long time ago about a man who was going to speak at a children's home. And uh, he had been invited to come in to share the gospel with those kids. And, and as he prepared, he began to pray. And he, he called the children's home and said, tell me something about these kids. And they said, most of them come from either abusive homes or drug-ridden homes. And they've been taken out of the homes because of difficulty there. And, and this this speaker, this pastor decided that what he would do would be to change the imagery up. And so he began to describe God as this great mechanic. A lot of the kids there had a mechanic shop and they would work on cars. And he talked about God coming in and taking a 64 and a half Mustang and, and, and it's dented and it's dinged by all these events of life that it's made its way through. And the engine is broke down and needs an overhaul. And he went through all this imagery of this great big mechanic. And he said to the, the kids at the end, God is that mechanic that it's come to, 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 to repair the dents and the dings of life. And he painted a beautiful picture for those kids to be able to understand. 
And there's nothing wrong with us using imagery that helps people in in the moments of difficulty to maybe have a different image of who God is. But the writer of Hebrews didn't do that. He didn't shy away from this this term of, uh, of our father being good and gracious and looking out for our good in it. He was fully aware of, 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 of some of the baggage that would come with that. But what he comes to do today is to redeem the image of father. Some of you had godly fathers. And man, they walked with Jesus and they modeled for you what it meant to, to, to love and to be loved. And, and, and you need to realize what a blessing that is. I had one of those dads, still do, that models for me what it is to love Jesus and to follow him. But some of you are not that blessed. God wants to come today and to redeem this image of father. He calls us to see him as the father that our hearts have always longed for. To be the father that, that, that we have always wished our earthly father could be. And so he comes today to say to you, he is all of that and so much more. Nothing And no image that God could use could convey his incredible love for us like the love of a true father. So let's let's don't try to escape that image today. Let's let God redeem that image and let that image begin to help us to understand what it means to to be loved and accepted and, and to have a father who is deeply concerned for us. And so he starts with this image now as he shifts. And in verse four, he says, or verse five, I'm sorry. He says, and have you forgotten the exhortation? This, this urging, this moment of, of calling you to himself. Have you forgot this exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, we know the Bible was written in a masculine language, and this is not just speaking to men, but it's speaking to men and women. Some translations are, are, are coming in and saying, you know, that it speaks to you as sons and daughters. But what he's saying here is, don't you realize that you are a child of God and that the word of God addresses you as such, as his children? And then he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the, the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So what he's going to say here is, I want you to remember that, that as a child of God, he is going to discipline you and he is going to to take you and 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 begin to to help this image of God emerge from you we are we are created in the image of God and sin has marred that and it's covered that and like a like this incredible painting that's just been smeared with with stuff that hides and disguises the image beneath it we are created in the image of God and he is in the process of restoring us and bringing back forth that image of his son in us. And he says the way that he does that is through discipline. Now, for many of us, when we hear the term discipline, we think of those whoopings we got when we were a kid, right? Dad, I can remember you lining up us three boys in the bedroom, and it didn't matter who did it. We were all going to be in trouble. And if, if, we weren't, if we weren't guilty that time, we were being punished for something we probably did before that y'all didn't catch us for. But I can remember my daddy loving me enough to spank me. Loving me enough to correct me and to discipline me. And for many of us, we think of discipline that way. But in this passage, it seems to be that the term discipline refers more to training. 
to bringing up and to training and to calling forth the gifts that are there and to, to, to be able to mold us and shape us. And sometimes that comes through punishment. Sometimes that comes through, through uh, a whooping, if you will. But, but, but more times than not, what he's referring to here is God training us. And so when we read this word discipline, that's used nine different times in these seven verses. But when he speaks of the word discipline here, he's talking about how God trains us and shapes us and molds us. So don't let that negative image of, 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 of a whooping or a spanking uh, be something that, that just, oh man, if, if God's going to love me, then God's going to spank me. He will if that's what's required, if that's what's best. But even greater than that, he's talking about how God disciplines us. Athletes are disciplined. They discipline their body. They train their bodies to perform at at peak performance. And and that's what God is all about here. And for us to understand that, we really ought to jump down to verse verse 10 to start with. Sometimes you've got to grab the context of, of, of where he's going and what he's trying to do. Why is it that God disciplines us? At the end of verse 10, it says this. He says, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This is the purpose of God's discipline. It's always for our good, and it's always to to help that image of God shine forth and and, and to to, uh, to be displayed so that other people could do it. There is a purpose for everything that God allows us to go through. It's a purpose. And, And God never wastes a moment of your pain. He uses that in a way to shape you and to mold you and to further the work of the kingdom and to to be able to further the growth that he wants to do in you. So he says, my son, do not regard lightly. Don't miss the point of the discipline of the Lord. God is setting you up for success. Listen to me. Good parents, wise parents are always looking a step or two beyond where their kids are. And they are trying to prepare them to succeed. It, it may be by teaching your son what it means, uh, dads, to what, what it, what, teaching your sons what it looks like for a, a man to love a woman so that when he reaches that point of falling in love, he knows the commitment that he's making. He knows what's involved. He knows the sacrifice that's going to be required of him as he gets into marriage. It's a father who's looking several steps down the road and saying, I want to set you up for success and not for failure. That's what a father does. And that's what our Heavenly Father is doing. He is looking at where you are right now, but he's also looking down the road several steps and saying, I need to get you ready for what's about to come. I need to get you ready for the things that you can't even see that are on the horizon. And so don't don't regard lightly. Don't miss the point of the discipline of the Lord. And don't be weary. Don't give up when you are reproved, or that means to be corrected by God. Listen, guys, correction is not rejection. Took me a long time in life to figure that out. I grew up as one of those guys that wanted to, to kind of be a, this perfectionist, wanted everything to go just perfect. And so when I got corrected, I felt it as rejection. Oh my gosh, I'm not good enough. Oh my gosh, I, I messed up. Oh my gosh, I got to make that right. But correction is not rejection. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's going to say to us that if we are true sons of God, we can expect God to correct us because why? That's what a loving father does. 
He doesn't just let his kids run wild. He doesn't just ignore their, their sinfulness. He doesn't ignore the, the things that are in them that are going to cause them problems three steps down the road. He begins now to correct that so that it's not an issue down the road. That's what a loving father does. And so he says, don't take lightly the discipline of the Lord and don't give up when, when, when he corrects you. Don't, don't grow so frustrated that you just throw up your hands and say, well, if I can't be perfect, then I'm not even going to try. Don't do that. For the Lord disciplines, look at this, he disciplines the one he loves. He trains us because he loves us. And he corrects us, he chastises every son whom he receives. The NIV version says every son that he delights in. So this is not talking about just a big whooping. This is talking about a God who loves you enough that he's going to begin to refine you and make you more and more in the image of God. He says he disciplines the one he loves. Why? Because that's what a loving father does. Some fathers today are so afraid that if they discipline their kids, their kids won't love them. And the father is so insecure in himself and who he is that he's afraid to discipline his kids and teach them what's right. And he does them more harm by not disciplining them than he does if he would have disciplined them. Kids that grow up with parents who love them enough to discipline will grow up respecting their mom and dads. Kids who never receive discipline from their parents will grow up with with no respect for their fathers and no respect for their mothers, and they will walk on them and they will disregard them. And he's saying, don't you do that. Don't you be like that. Discipline is not to destroy our faith, but to develop our faith. And then as it's developed, to display it for the world to see. Why? Because we are in a race, and we are not the only runner. But somebody's handed us this baton, and we are going to hand it off to somebody else. And so God comes, and he, he develops our faith, and he displays our faith so the people who are coming behind us can see it and have an example and a model of what it means to walk with Jesus. So he says here that this discipline that he calls us to, he says, you've got to endure it. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. Sons who he just said that he loves and sons who he has received, sons that he has accepted. So every son that God accepts into the family is a son that God is going to discipline. He is going to train and he is going to help us to grow in godliness, like it says in verse 10. So he says, you've got to endure the discipline that comes your way. Endure the training that God puts you in the midst of. It's not always fun. It's not always easy. But it is always for your good. God is treating you as a son. You say, well, I don't know that I want a father like that. That's part of the deal. When you come to God and ask him to be your father, you are asking him to guide you and to lead you and to shape you and to mold you, not into the man that you want to be or the woman that you want to be, but into the child that he has created you to be. You can't have one without the other. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at what he did with his son, Jesus. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. How did he treat his only begotten son? Hebrews 2, 10, he says, it was fitting, it was proper, it was right that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory. So those who would come after Jesus and be a part of the family. That he should make the founder of their salvation perfect, mature, complete. How? Through suffering. How was Jesus matured? How was he made perfect? Now, not, not, not perfect in the fact that he was sinless and had to be made perfect. That's not what I'm saying. Perfect in the sense of being mature, complete. How was Jesus completed? Through suffering. And we are crazy to think that God will do that in our lives in any other way. Hebrews chapter 5. These are passages we've already gone through. So we went through the study, but let me remind you of them. Hebrews chapter 5 and, and, and verse 8. He's talking about how that, 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 uh, that Jesus came and it says, and, and Jesus was a son and he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, pure, complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus faced suffering and persecution. And, and yet Jesus submitted himself to the Father, and he did that. And so he says he's treating you just like he treats a son, any son. The way he treated his own son is to grow us up and to mature us through the trials and the tribulations that we are going to go through. You grow more in the valley than you do on the mountaintop. And so God grows us in the valley, and he displays us on the mountaintop for others to be able to see. And he gets the glory, and he gets all the credit. So he says, God is, is treating you as sons. Back to verse 7. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? What father wouldn't want to train his son? What kind of a father wouldn't want to, to grow up and mature and perfect his child? For what son is there whom his father does not discipline or train? If you are left without discipline or without training, in which all have participated, remember that cloud of witnesses that he talked about back in the beginning of chapter 12? If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate children. That's a child without a father or a child without a known father. He's saying, if God doesn't discipline you, if God doesn't train you, if God is not maturing you, then that's a good sign that you don't belong to him. You ever been in a, in a crowd and, and somebody else's child is acting up? I know your children don't ever act up, but somebody else's child is, is acting up and, and, and you just want to reach over there and, and, and you want to use, if that was my child. But it's not. And so you refrain. But if it was your child, you would step up and you would correct that behavior because you know that if it's not corrected, it's going to create bigger problems down the road. He's saying we have a father who disciplines those that he accepts and he does it in love. And if you're not being trained and disciplined and molded by God, then you're not really his child. He says, besides this, just talking besides just the, the heavenly thing, let's, let's talk about our earthly fathers. He says, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For these earthly fathers, he says, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Now listen to this. Your, 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 your earthly father that, that loves you 
will discipline you in a way that seems best to him, but, but his eyesight is limited. He can't always get it right. Even the best of fathers fall short on this earth. Some of you are incredible parents, and you have done an incredible job raising your children. But if you were honest, you'd have to say, like I would have to say, that I have fallen way short. There are things I know now that I wish I would have known 30 years ago. God is not through growing me and maturing me. And, 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 and while I did the best that I knew how to do at that moment, there's a lot of things if I were to start over today, I would probably do a lot different. Our earthly parents do the best they can. They discipline us for a short time in, in a way that seems best to them at that moment. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Here's the difference. God's not still growing. God's not still learning. He's already got this thing figured out. He he not only created you, but now he is fashioning and forming you in his image. He he says here in the book of Hebrews that, that Jesus Christ is both the founder and the finisher of our faith. Well, we understand how he becomes the founder of our faith. He died in our place on the cross, and, and we come to him in repentance, and we accept him as our Lord and our Savior. That's how faith begins, but we don't often think about how is it that he finishes this faith. He does it through discipline, through training us, through making us over again and again in his image so that we may share in his holiness. That's the ultimate goal is that you and I began to look more and more like our Heavenly Father. That the family resemblance begins to emerge as we grow and we mature. That's what God is after, and that is for our good. But we don't get there unless we go through the process. We don't get there unless we trust him and we submit to him. And, and so he says, you know, hey, we had earthly fathers. They disciplined us good, and, and we respected them. Should we not much more submit ourselves to the father? This father of life, this father of the spirits who loved us and gave us his son, and, 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 and should we not trust him even more than we trust our, our earthly fathers? He disciplines us for our good. There is a purpose of his discipline, and that is to share in his holiness and then to enjoy this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Look at this. He says, for the moment, in the moment, no discipline seems good. It's, it's painful, he says. Discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, when, when payday comes, It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now, don't miss what he's saying here. This this is incredible. He says, in in the middle of your struggle, you may be going, where in the world is God? Why am I struggling? Why, Why doesn't God just speak and this disease be gone? Why doesn't God just speak and that tumor dissolve? Why doesn't God just speak and my marriage be healed? Why is it that God's leaving me in the middle of this mess? And we have to choose whether we're going to trust God in the middle of that or whether we're going to try to bail out in the middle of that. Where we get in danger as believers is this, that most of us, when we're in the middle of our pain, will do anything to escape the pain. Your marriage is not going the way that you think it should go. Ah, Satan comes and says, I've got a solution. There's another way that we can 
fulfill your needs. Another way that we can, 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 can take you to a, a good place. You're not making it up the ladder quite as fast as you'd like to at work. And it's painful that you're getting passed over again and again. And Satan comes and says, there's a way that you can get ahead quicker. All you got to do is compromise your integrity. All you got to do is take this little shortcut that I'm providing you. And every single time we hit a painful moment, it seems like Satan's showing up and offering us some kind of a shortcut. Some kind of a way to escape the the, the pain. And, And what we end up doing is jumping out of the frying pan straight into the fire. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I need you to see how, 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 how wicked that is, how, how, how foolish that is for you to try to short-circuit what God is doing. Yes, it's painful in the moment. And it's nothing. sometimes there's nothing pleasant about what you're going through. It hurts and it rips your heart out. But if you will just trust the process that God has ordained, and trust the, the Father that's working for your good, then later, at payday, when it's finally time, when, it, when it's done the work that God intended for it to do, it will yield a fruit of righteousness. But only for those who have seen it through, who have been trained by it. First Peter chapter 5. He writes about this process of, of going through these difficult moments. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. He says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time God can exalt you. Cast all of your anxiety upon Him. He's not saying, Don't be anxious, don't, don't ever have an anxiety, but cast those anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. I want you to to, to think clearly. Be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone he can devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Every time you hit a painful moment, Satan's going to offer you a quick out. Resist that. He is this devouring lion that seeks to destroy you. Resist that. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. You're not the only Christian to suffer. You're not the only one to have a difficult time. It's part of the process that God grows us and matures us in. Trust your Father. And look what he says. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's a process that God takes us through, and many times it is painful. It is not pleasant. But he says, see it through. Why? Because the payday is coming. The payday is coming when, when, when this, this peaceful fruit of righteousness will be displayed in your life. Can we trust our Heavenly Father? In the good days, we say, sure. Yeah, look at all He's given me. But what about in the bad days? When you're being pounded again and again and again. Again. 
Paul talks about this. Second Corinthians. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the trials we've been through. Man, we were in far over our head, beyond our ability to endure. We despaired of life. We felt like the sentence of death had been handed down to us, that we were going to die in this mess. And then Paul says this, but God allowed that to happen to teach me not to depend upon myself, but upon him who raises the dead. Sometimes the trials that we go through are are, are trials to teach us how to depend upon God and not upon ourselves. And sometimes when when we're at our, our lowest, that's all we've got. We have nothing left to give. And then we learn that we have everything we need in him. Let me look at these last few verses with you. He says, therefore... He's going to switch now from giving you the facts. You've got a father that you can trust. You've got a process that's going to produce. You've got all these things. This painful process will produce a peaceful righteousness. He's given you the facts, the theology, the truth. And now he's about to switch. When you see that word, therefore, we, I know we always say, yeah, ask what it's there for, but, but here's the deal. It, when you see the word, therefore, and you see these, these, these terms that link two thoughts together, they're usually transitioning from, here's the truth. Now let me fire you up, let me encourage you, let me exhort you to live it out. It's not enough to know the truth, but now you got to live it out. And that's what he's going to say here. He says, I've given you the truth about how you got to run this race. I've given you the truth about the fact that it's going to be painful and and that you're going to begin to cramp up, you're going to begin to hurt, and you're going to have to press through. Therefore, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. What's he saying? So I was reading this this week. I read a guy, an author that said this. He says, when you watch a runner run and he begins to hit that wall, the first thing you notice is that his arms begin to droop. And, and your arms are part of what pumps you and gets you going and keeps you moving in the right. He says, you'll see their arms begin to lag. You'll see their knees begin to wobble right before they crash and burn. The writer of Hebrews is seeing that. He's using that imagery. He says, I want you to lift your drooping hands. Reach up to God. Reach up to him. Let's let's let him help you and strengthen you. Reach out and do that. Find your strength in him. Find in him your second wind. Strengthen your weak knees. You're pushing for a finish line. You're, You're in that final kick. He wants you to finish strong. And then he says, make straight paths for your feet and I studied those that, that term makes straight paths. It's talking about that, that when a chariot would run down the street, it would leave tire tracks. And, and, and soon it's a rut. And, and those tracks and those ruts are things that other people can follow to know how to get from point A to point B. And it's back to that imagery of the fact that, that we are the middle leg in this relay. And, and there are those who have run before us and laid down some tracks. And, and, and we are running in that and we are making those tracks straight. We don't want to take people astray to the left or to the right. But we want to run straight for the prize. He says, make straight that path. Why? Because others are going to come behind you and they're going to look for the trail that you've blazed. And you don't want your life to lead them astray. I think here he's setting up this discussion about what it means to to be salt and light in the world, to be a, a person that's going to point people to Jesus and not take them away from Jesus. Because here's what happens. We as believers are going to go through this discipline. And if we waver to the left or to the right, the world is watching. And maybe they've watched you with with great admiration as you've walked with the Lord and now you've hit that rough patch 
And if you waver or you wobble to the left or to the right, they may go with you that way and it may destroy their faith and their opportunity to come to Jesus. Make straight paths. Why? So that what is lame, what is lacking, what is disabled may not be put out of joint, dislocated. It means to be twisted out of joint, but rather be healed. Think about those who are going to come behind you. Think about your children who are going to follow in your footsteps. When you're tempted to give up, when your hands are drooping and your knees are weak, and and you just began to kind of stumble through life, I want you to think that there's others behind you. So lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Keep those paths straight so that those who come behind us will not, those who are lame and who are weak in their faith, will not be put completely out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Make it our goal to be at peace with others. You know what we do many times we go through trials? We want to blame somebody, don't we? Well, if that doctor had only caught this sooner, If that coworker just hadn't have done so and so, if my spouse would have just, and we turn to blame other people, and when we can't find anybody else to blame, many times you know where we turn? We turn to God, and we begin to blame God. God, if you just would have come through. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? When God comes looking for them after they've sinned? Where are you? What happened? And Adam says this, God, that woman that you gave me, he's blaming. It's her fault and it's your fault. It's not my fault. He looks at Eve. Eve, what do you have to say? Oh, that serpent that you created and stuck in the garden. You let him slip through the gate and now he's to blame. And this root of bitterness can plant itself in our lives. And he warns us against that. He says, don't blame us. Be at peace with everyone, with God and, and with others around you. Accept the responsibility and, 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 and look for the opportunity to be holy because without that, we're not going to see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now here he's saying, don't just take care of yourself, but, but see to it that, that no one fails. We are to look around us and have a concern and a love for our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That's why God's put us in a family is that when one hurts, we all hurt. When one begins to go astray, those who are strong in their faith are called to to, to bring that person back and to help restore them. It's, It's us being together. See to it that no one around you fails to obtain the grace. Point them back to the grace of God again and again and again. And, And don't let this root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Don't let that be the characteristic of you. Trials will make you better or they'll make you bitter. And what determines which way you go is where you look. If you run to God or if you're going to run from God. And then he closes this section by linking two things together that at first glance don't seem to be connected at all. But when you dig below the surface, they really are. He says in verse 16, He says up in in 15, see to it that, 
And then he connects the thought here that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. How in the world is sexual immorality and Esau connected? You ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered how those two things can even be connected in the same sentence? Esau wasn't sexually immoral. So he's not talking about that, that, that what doomed him was some sexual immorality. But, but in this thing, what we see is something happening that both, both sexual immorality and unholiness that, that Esau exercised are the same. And, and this is what it is. Both of them traded their future promise for immediate pleasure. The person who is sexually immoral trades a future promise. For immediate gratification. Remember the story of Esau? Came in from hunting. Probably struck out that day. His brother had cooked some stew. He says, give me some stew. And his brother says, oh, wait, wait, just a minute. What are you going to give me? Give me your birthright. That, 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 that future promise. That future blessing. Give it to me. And he says, but I'm about to die. Give me some food. And the brother says, give me your birthright. And he says, man, you can have the birthright because what good is that going to do if I'm dead? He stopped looking forward. And he got lost in the clouds. And when you read that back in Genesis chapter 25, you see this discussion that takes place. And he says, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. And if I'm dead, that birthright does me no good. You can have the birthright, just give me the food. He traded his future blessing for immediate pleasure. How many times do we do the same thing? How many times do we trade the blessing that God has waiting for us on the other side of that trial for the opportunity just to get out of it at any cost? We, we convince ourselves that it's okay because, I mean, you know, if I don't compromise my integrity at work, I'll probably get fired. If I get fired, I'll never be able to witness to these people. And if I can't witness to people, then what good am I doing here? And we work ourselves into this mental exercises where we try to justify compromise. We justify sin. We justify whatever. How many times have we forfeited that future blessing for immediate gratification and immediate pleasure? Look at the way he describes this. He sold his birthright, that lifetime blessing of being the firstborn. He sold it for a single meal. He gave up something of a lifetime for something that would satisfy him for a few minutes. I've done that. Chances are you've done that. He says, here's the danger with that kind of mentality. He says, you know that afterwards, when payday came and it was time for him to cash in the the, the birthright and to get the Father's blessing, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. In the moment, I'm going to die. What good's a birthright? 
But God sustained him, kept him alive. And then he looked back and said, oh, it's time for me to inherit my birthright. God said, no. And he cried and he wept and it was too late. He wanted the blessing, but he didn't want the blesser. He wanted the payday, but he didn't want the pain of that discipline that that brings about that payday. Everybody would love to hoist the Lombardi trophy at the end of the season, right? But not everybody's willing to put in what's required to get you there. He says, look, he, he was rejected because he, he, was, he, there, he, was, he found no chance to repent. Let's be honest, we'll real, real honest with each other for just a minute. Have you ever faced the decision about sin? And, and there's this temptation that Satan puts before you, and man, he just makes it look so good, and you go, man, I know that's wrong. There's no doubt in my mind that that's, that that's off limits, that that's wrong, that this is not right. But you say to yourself, but you know what? I'm going to indulge and then I can repent. I, I'm, I'm going to do this and, and then I'll just be sorry and I'll repent and I'll tell God I'm sorry. But man, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity. You're fooling yourself. If you think that's how this thing works. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, it talks about the fact that we, that there's two different types of repentance. Two different types of sorrow. Paul's written a letter to this church. The, the letter upset the church. It hurt the church, but it led the church to repentance. And now Paul is following up on that. He said, I, I realize early in, in verse 8 that the letter grieved you, but just for a little while. But as it is, he says in verse 9, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. So you suffered no loss. But look at this, verse 10. For godly grief, he's going to contrast this with worldly grief in this, in this verse. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret but worldly grief produces death there's two times of grief i'm sorry that i got caught i'm sorry that something i love is being taken away from me i'm sorry that i gave up my birthright i'm sorry that i made that decision and now it's going to cost me something that's worldly sorrow I'm sorry for what I'm losing. I'm sorry for what it's going to cost me. I'm sorry for the embarrassment that I'm going to endure. But that kind of sorrow does not necessarily lead us to repentance. It's more of a self-centered thing. I'm sorry that I'm losing something. But godly sorrow produces repentance. Here's what godly sorrow says. God, I have sinned against you and you alone. And I have done what is wicked in your sight. It's David in Psalm 51. It's a repentance that comes from the heart. Not at what we're losing, but at what we have done to our Father. And the shame that we've brought not to our name, but to His name. Not what it's cost us, but what our decision has cost the kingdom. 
That is godly repentance and godly grief. And it it produces this repentance which leads us to salvation. And it brings with it no regrets at all. The writer of Hebrews says there's a process that we go through if we want to grow. It's a process that every child of God goes through. Because as a child of God, he's not going to just turn you free and let you destroy yourself. He is going to mature you and grow you in his likeness. So maybe today you feel like you're being pounded and you don't know if you can hold on. And you need someone to help you lift your, your, your feeble arms and, 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 and strengthen your feeble knees. God stands ready to do that. But you've got to submit to his purpose and his plan for your life. You've got to see that we have a God that can cause all things to work together for our good if we will just love him and trust him in the process. I don't know what you're going through this morning or what you'll face tomorrow morning when you wake up. But I will tell you this. We have a God who has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us, never to abandon us or walk away. His correction is not rejection. His correction is love. And it's because he loves you that he corrects you. It's because he loves you that he trains you. It's because he loves you that he gives you another opportunity when you don't deserve it. That's called grace. And that's the God that we serve. And that's the God that you can trust with your life on good days as well as bad days. It's not enough to know it in our heads. We've got to submit to it with our lives and see it through to completion, knowing that payday is coming and that we will not regret one moment of having submitted ourselves to him. So wherever you find yourselves today, good day, bad day, somewhere in between, you need to decide, where am I going to turn? And what voice am I going to listen to? When the heat is turned up and the fire gets hot and the pain is real, you'll find the answer in him and in him alone. Let's pray.